All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Vaughn Forest. Let me again add, I know that you've been welcomed so many times today, but I want to add my welcome to you as well. If you are joining us online, I want to take a moment and say hi to you, uh, whatever capacity you, uh, you find yourself listening today. Uh, I want to introduce myself. My name is Brett Moore, and I am so honored and grateful to have the opportunity to do this, to worship with you, to open God's Word with you this morning. So I have been a long-distance fan, uh, I guess I can say that, a supporter of your church, Vaughn Forest, for, uh, for a number of years, for a while. So Pastor Adam Bishop and I, we have been friends for around 25 years. And so from time to time, uh, he and I have connected, and I have stopped to pray for you and check in on you. And I'm so, so grateful to have this chance to stand before you and open God's word. Um, So I have served as a pastor in Georgia, in East Tennessee, uh, most recently in California before moving back to the South. Uh, My wife, Lane, is here with me today. We are so grateful for this opportunity to worship. So I've I've got a chance out in the lobby uh, between services to meet some of you today. But if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I would love the chance to say hi to you uh, later this morning. So if you have your Bible, I hope you brought it with you. Uh, Go ahead and make your way to Matthew chapter 6, where we'll continue uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We'll begin reading in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6 in just a moment. Uh, But first, so I want you to know that the person that I look up to the most in in ministry, uh, his name is Ray Ortland. And uh, I, he, I think he is considered by many to be the grandfather to my generation of pastors. And so uh, he has spoken at my church before we have had a chance to speak about the church before I have listened to him preach, I think, as much or more as anybody around. And he will begin, most often his sermon will begin with him saying this, to the church and saying it in front of the pastors. And he would say uh, something like this. He would go, it is obvious that God's hand is at work here. It is obvious that the Lord is here. Every time, it didn't matter what church or, or where he found himself, he would say that every single time he would begin to preach a message. And I heard him say that, and I asked him when I had a chance to speak with him, why do you say that? Um, I wanted to know if he was saying it to be honoring to the pastors. I didn't know if he was being vaguely encouraging. I didn't know if it was just routine and that's what he did before he preached. I wanted to know if he actually believed that. And his response back to me was, uh, I say that because it's true. I say those words because they're true, because the story of the Bible and the message of the gospel is God's love toward the church. That's the story of the Bible. And that includes this one. And so I want you to know that I have prayed for you and prepared for today. Um, I don't know how you find yourself this Sunday morning, but I want you to know that it is obvious that God's hand is at work here, and it is obvious that the Lord is here. So you've been in a series uh, about a sermon, a sermon series about a sermon called Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus's most famous sermon. And what Jesus is describing in this passage of the Bible is what it should be like, what it should feel like, what you should personally and corporately experience in the kingdom of God. 
So I hope that you've been following along with this series. If you've been out of town, if you haven't had a chance to listen to earlier messages in this series, I would encourage you to go online. You can find those and other resources at vonforest.com. But if you're here in the room with me, go ahead and grab your notes. If you're listening online, those notes are available as well to follow along with the sermon. But again, like I said, my wife is here with me this weekend. Uh, we have two daughters. They're at home with their grandparents now. And there's something that we do pretty regularly around our dinner table. And it's a chance for when we have other people in our home, and we do it almost every time we sit down for dinner, is that we have these little conversations cards, and they're called table toppers. And it's really, it's, it's really simple. It's, it's hypothetical scenarios to get people to talk to one another, to wonder out loud, to make a choice, to help each other, kind of get to know it. And, and I don't know all of you that well, and you don't know me all that well. And so I thought, before we got started, we could get to know each other a little bit. So here's how this is going to work. Uh, I'm going to read you a couple of these table topper conversation starters, and then you're going to respond by, you know, raising your hand, and we're going to make a choice, and we're going to get to know each other a little bit this morning. I want to make sure we're all together and you're with me today. All right, sound good? Okay, one person says yes. All right, so here we go. By raising your hand, all right, by raising your hand, would you rather have two noses or one eye? All right, so raise your hand if you would rather have two noses rather than one eye. Go ahead and raise your hand. It's okay. All right, interesting. All right, and those of you in the room would rather have one eye. Go ahead and raise your hand. One eye. Very interesting. This is good to get to know you a little bit. All right, how about this? Would you rather sing an announcement when you entered a room or do a cartwheel as you left? So would you rather sing an announcement as you entered or do a cartwheel? How many people would sing the announcement as you entered the room? Clearly. All right, great. And how many of you would do a cartwheel and make a big exit? Okay, helpful. That's good to know. This is, this is helpful to me. Would you rather have a vacation home in the mountains or at the beach? All right, where's my mountain people? They like to get away to the mountains. Great. And who loves the beach? Who loves the beach? Awesome. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that is right. All right, so here's some, those are great. Thank you for uh, participating, playing along. I wrote a few extra just to, to help us really get our minds around what's happening this morning. So these are not for you to participate out loud or even by raising your hand, but would you rather live in a home that was characterized by peace or constant tension? Which would you rather choose? Would you rather have relationships with friends and family that are characterized by warmth and acceptance or worry and anxiety? Or maybe what would you give up? What would you trade if you could eliminate all financial issues, all stress about money? If it could all go away tomorrow, what would you give up? Interesting questions. When we think about money, we oftentimes forget that the Bible has a lot to say about money. The Bible talks about money a lot. I was surprised to find this out, but of the 38 parables in the gospel, so these are stories that Jesus told to illustrate a greater and larger story. 16 of the 38 parables in the gospels deal with money. And more than that, one out of 10 verses in the New Testament deal with money. This is speaking directly to the moment that we find ourselves in. This has to do with everybody in the room. But more than just that, the Bible contains 500 verses on prayer, where prayer is the subject. The Bible contains less than 500, around 500 on faith, but over 2,000 Bible verses can be found that deal with money. 
The Bible seems to think that talking about money and finance and treasure is a very important topic. And today we're going to read, we're going to keep going. This is the next part of the text that you're looking through over the course of the summer. This is in Jesus's most famous sermon. But what it looks like on the surface is just financial advice. I don't think it's just that. I think there's something deeper at play as we read this text when Jesus talks about treasure. So I hope you found Matthew chapter six by now. I'm gonna begin reading for us in verse 19 and the verses will also be up on the screen. So let me read for us. Jesus speaking here saying, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. And God put these verses in the Bible. And the reason that God put these verses in the Bible, the reason they're in there, is to tell us why we can trust Jesus. That's why these verses are in the Bible, to tell you and me why Jesus can be trusted. And we're talking about treasures. And treasures are the things that we try to keep that are important to us. We hold them in our hands so tightly, but treasures are things we try to keep and they're important because of value that we place on them. We signify, we say this matters. This is important. We go to great lengths. We insure them. We manage them. We even protect them. And this is not just for the adults in the room. Everyone, generationally, everyone has something that they treasure. The word itself, the words and terms that we use even describe the importance about what we treasure and show us what we treasure. I remember as a kid, I had uh, really like three things that mattered more than anything else in the world to me. I had a Michael Jordan rookie card, a George Brett signed baseball, and like three silver dollars. And these were my most prized possessions. And I would keep these in a safe. And this safe had a combination that only I knew. And even that word is interesting, isn't it? The word safe implies that what we value needs to be protected. This is the underlying principle that Jesus is getting at in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, treasure doesn't necessarily just have to mean money. In fact, I don't think it only means money. I think it very rarely has to do with money. Treasure doesn't necessarily have to do with money. We treasure all kinds of things. You treasure all kinds of things. We find our safety and our security in all kinds of places and, lean in, and people. We treasure all kinds of things and places and people. We treasure our reputation. We treasure our reputation. And your reputation is very simply what people think about when they think about you. That's your reputation. 
So when your name comes up in conversation, when your face goes into someone's imagination, your reputation is what people think about when they think about you. And this is not a bad thing. The scripture tells us that in order to be a leader of the church, you must be thought of highly by the community in which you live. And so your reputation so matters, but we treasure our reputation. We care what other people think of us, but it might not be your reputation. It might be your relationships, the people that you're closest to. You value time with people. You value your friends. You're a servant. You love people. And your relationships, very simply, are what you think about when you think about other people. When you think about how you can pray for someone, how you can serve someone, how being with someone makes you feel alive and full of joy, and you love that person, and you enjoy your time together. And Jesus very clearly valued relationships in the Bible. He valued people. People mattered and matter today to God. We treasure our reputation and our relationships. We treasure the future. We treasure things generationally. It matters how we treat our children, how we're arranging our lives so that our children may grow in their love of Jesus. We want to disciple the next generation. Even where we send our kids to school is something we treasure. What they're learning, what culture is saying to our children, we treasure our kids. We treasure what we do. We treasure where we work. We treasure our family traditions because no one had better dare want to do it different than how it's always been done. We treasure all kinds of things. And look, none of those things, those aren't necessarily bad. Those aren't necessarily bad things. They're not. But lean in. They're just things. They're just things. And the point Jesus is trying to make in this passage is not that you shouldn't care about your treasure. That's not what he's trying to say. The point that Jesus is trying to make is that the things of this world were created for you to enjoy, not to bring you security. And God created them for you to enjoy. He gave us relationships. He gave us people. He gave us children. He gave, I love this. God created our eyes in such a way so that when we look out at a certain time of the evening as the sun is setting over the hill, that that just brings us to light. And God didn't have to do that. But the reason he made the sky and he made your eyes the way that he did is just because he likes you. And he's created these things for you to enjoy. The reason that coffee exists is because God is good and he has a plan for your life. Like these are things that God created for us to enjoy, but they're just things. And the things that God creates are not for us to find security in. They're things for us to enjoy. What do I mean? God's will for your life is not for you to take on a vow of poverty. That's not the gospel. The prosperity gospel and the gospel of poverty are both equally destructive. That's not God's will for your life. But it is that you would not find your ultimate joy and your ultimate fulfillment in what you have and what you can hold. What is God after in this passage? It's not what we hold in our hands. What God is after is what takes up space in our hearts. And what we're talking about today is less the treasure itself, but the treasuring that you and I do. Like how we treasure it. We reveal what our treasures are, but what we try to protect and secure and keep. And this passage of scripture is part of what I think are just normal principles in the Christian life. So in his sermon, and you know this, because in this series, Jesus has already talked about things. 
He's talked about prayer. He's talked about fasting. He's talked about forgiveness. But Jesus does not introduce the practice of prayer and fasting and that you should pray. He doesn't come up with those as new ideas. I think Jesus just assumes that people who follow him are going to be doing the practices that are normal parts of being a Christian. He says earlier on in the sermon, he says, if you pray, no, he says, when you pray. Does he say, if you fast? No, he says, when you fast. And then without hesitation, he seamlessly moves into the next section of the text that we read this morning. It's not if you treasure, but what you treasure. And all of us treasure something. All of us treasure something. And what we treasure is what we worship. What we treasure is what we worship. This is the revealing part of the passage. Look at verse 21 again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does that mean? It means that the object of your worship determines the location of your heart. Your heart can be found in what you worship. This is Jesus saying to his early followers and to us, where you find assurance is where you find your heart. What you have to have in order for things to be okay in order for you to feel good about things, what you have to have, what you have to hold, what you can't go without, that if you have this, then everything's all right. But if you don't have this, then you don't know what you'll do. That's where you find your heart. So I have heard this, and this may not be true of you in the room, but you've probably known somebody like this. Do you have children or know of people who have children where they have a favorite stuffed animal or a blanket or, you know, just a toy? You know, I have talked, and this is probably not you, and definitely don't raise your hand if it is, but I've talked to some friends of mine who, like, they have left stuffed animals or pillows or blankets uh, at on vacation and they've either had to drive back and pick up the stuffed animal or pay to have it shipped back to their family because their kid just can't fall asleep at night without the precious teddy bear or the rabbit or the unicorn. This is everywhere. This is not just unique to children. This is everywhere. This is Linus and his blue blanket that he can't seem to go without. This is Andy's toys and Toy Story. This is Woody and Buzz that he can't imagine surviving without. This is Joey Tribbiani's penguin named Hugsy. Like he doesn't want to give it up. These objects are illustrations. Like it's this object, this, this security blanket is what it's called. The stuffed animal, the toy These objects, they provide comfort and they provide security to the owners, but it's not just because of what they are. You don't find comfort and security just because you have a stuffed animal. You have security and comfort because of what it represents. It represents that there was a time in your life that you can draw back on in your memory and you remember holding this and feeling like everything was okay. And so through that principle of familiar experience, you are brought security and comfort and assurance. What do I mean? When Jesus is talking about moths and rust and thieves, he's not giving hypothetical examples. In verse 19, he's dealing with the real objects that people interacted with on a daily basis. To first century Jews, the cloaks that they have, and they probably only had one, that was a prized possession. And so if it was destroyed by a moth, that was financially devastating to them. To the people hearing these words, metals were, and they still are, they're precious, and rust is cancer to metal. And there are huge consequences to losing these precious metals. 
These people, their cities had walls, their streets had guards, their doors had locks for the same reason that you and I do too. The same reason that we make sure the car is locked before we go into the store. The same reason that I do, and maybe this is just me, but I have the same routine every single night before I go to sleep. That after everyone is prayed for and everyone is in bed, I walk around to all the doors and make sure that they're shut and that they're locked. And only then can I lay my head down and go to sleep because I feel safe. But Jesus is not saying that these categories don't exist. He's not advising bad resource stewardship. What is he saying? He's saying that everything you can see, everything you can feel and touch in this life, it has an expiration date. It's all going to break. That your truck will break down, your jeans will go out of style, and your iPhone is planned to be obsolete one day. All this is temporary. Even the people. And yet, it gets our focus. It demands our attention. We look to it for security and safety and assurance and peace. And so for Jesus to say what he said is to make a huge paradigm shift and a claim. He's saying to his people, and he's saying to you and I, if you want actual security, place your faith in that which will never fail. And what will never fail? The Bible tells us what will never fail. Look at these verses. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Psalm 145, 13b. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. 2 Timothy 2, 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God's word will never change, and God's ways are always good. And... Do you know who this is for? These verses, this sermon, this is not cold-blooded conviction. These verses are for people like me. These verses are for people who know exactly what it feels like to put your trust in the wrong thing, in the wrong job, in the wrong experience and maybe even the wrong person. So if, like me, you found that life is hard, if, like me, you found that you are exhausted, if, like me, you're a sinner, these verses are a reminder of how the very heart of God is for people who learn the hard way. That's who his heart is for. His heart is for people who know that life organizes itself around the heart. That's who these verses are for. We organize our lives around our heart. Dallas Willard says about this passage, I love this. The most important, that's a claim. This is a huge Striking claim. The most important commandment of the Judeo Christian tradition is to treasure God and His realm more than anything else. 
So what is the most important commandment? It turns out that some time ago, these teachers were asking Jesus the same question. They said to him, good teacher, what is the most important commandment? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded back to them by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That was the first part of his answer. And these verses are an illustration of what it looks like to fulfill the greatest commandment. This is what it looks like to love God. This is what it means to love God with all your heart. Because your only wisdom and your only safety and your only fulfillment lies in treasuring God more than anything else. Translation, loving Jesus is the most important thing. Pastor Jerry Root said it first, and he said it best. Loving Jesus is the most important thing. But look at verses 22 and 23 again. He keeps going. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Did you know that doctors can tell so much just from a routine eye exam? that a trained physician can see so much just from looking at your eyes, that they can take an eye exam and they can tell if you have allergies or high blood pressure or diabetes or hepatitis or even heart disease just from looking at your eye. And what Jesus is doing in his example about the eye is that he's connecting, he's synchronizing the eye and the heart. All throughout scripture, we would see that the eye and the heart are synchronized. In fact, Paul would write to his friends in Ephesus and his prayer for that church was that the eyes of their heart would be opened, enlightened so that they could see. The person who treasures the kingdom of God sees everything in its true worth and relationship. You are given Christ's eyes. You're able to see with a perspective that you didn't have before. But the person who treasures the things of this world, the ways of this world, and things that are temporary, you will see everything from a distorted perspective. You cannot see clearly. You will organize your life around what you really love. And when you see from a distorted perspective, it leads to systematic frustration and disappointment. Are you frustrated? Are you consistently disappointed? Are you always angry? I wonder what you treasure. What Jesus is saying here is very clear. What he's saying is that if you want to know what has captured your heart, then follow your eyes. Just follow your eye. What has your attention? What are you looking at? If the first part of this sermon was about what gives you assurance, then this is where Jesus leans in and he says, you will organize your life around what you really love and around what really has your attention. And the end of verse 23 is a sobering reminder that for those whose assurance and attention are set on anything but Jesus Christ, that now and forever, life is darkness. If your attention is set on anything other than Jesus, It's not just later, but life now and forever is crushing and immeasurable darkness. And you have to choose. No one can make the decision for you. You have to decide. And you must choose because it's irrational to think that you can love and worship and treasure two things at once. You cannot walk in two directions at the same time. 
You cannot love the light and the darkness. You cannot love the eternal and the temporary. A choice must be made. And I get to that part of the sermon and I think that sounds great, but please tell me how to do that. And I need to know how to do that because this is where I struggle. I, I, I do not struggle in believing what the Bible has to say that because of the life and death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the grave that I can trust him with my justification and glorification that I will be with him in eternity in heaven forever. I trust that. I, I completely understand and I've given my life and trusted him with my eternity. What I worry about is different. I worry about what people think of me. I do. Way too much. I worry about what's going on in the life of my kids. I worry about where they go to school. I worry about the impact of culture. I worry about trends in the church and trends in the marketplace. I worry about what's going on in the financial sector. I worry about what kind of example men are setting for their families. I worry about what it looks like to be a Christian in our society. I worry about all those things. Translation, and this is just me raising my hand. This is me talking about me. When I worry, you know what I'm doing? I'm worshiping an idol. And God wants me to change my focus. And he wants to change what has my attention. So how do you do that? I love that it's this simple. How do you change what you're treasuring? By understanding the gospel. That's all. And what is the gospel? That Jesus treasures you. That's the gospel. What does it mean to treasure something? It means to say, if I have this, then everything, everything else is worth it. That's what it means to treasure something. If I have this, then everything else is worth it. It means that you're willing to pay the price. Pastor Tim Keller says, I love this quote, every treasure but Jesus will insist that you die to purchase it. It'll cost you your life. Every treasure demands that you die to purchase it. But Jesus himself is the one treasure who died to purchase you. Jesus left heaven. He was Lord. He was God. In the beginning, he was God and he was with God. And he left. He came to this world and he gave up everything. And he, he did it so that he could get you. He gave up everything that was rightfully his, that rightfully belonged to him. And he did it so that he could get you. 2 Peter 2.6 says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see it? Do you know who decided that Jesus was chosen and precious? It was God himself. God calls Jesus chosen and precious. And God sent Jesus into this world so that you could see and hear and feel and experience what God is like. So you could find your assurance and you could give your attention to the only person in the universe that will not bring you disappointment and who, Second Peter says, will not put you to shame. And not only that. It's not just that we are bought with a price. We are. 
It's not just that we've been saved by God who sent Jesus into the world to live the life that we could never live and die the death that we should have died. That's true. And that's not all. 2 Peter 2.9 goes on to say, you, and the you's here are plural. It's every one of us. This is what's true of you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the gospel. What are we saying? That God sent what was most precious to him so that through the cross, we might become precious to God. So this is everything. So lean in. The reason that you can trust Jesus is not just because he offers more assurance than anyone else, although he does, or that he is more worthy of your attention than anyone else, although he is. The reason that you can trust Jesus is because while in heaven, perfect, he must have looked at you and I and said, if I can have them, then anything would be worth it. If I could have them, even going to hell would be worth it. And Isaiah 53 tells us by way of prophecy that when Jesus looked at his completed sacrifice, he was satisfied, but not in himself, in you. You are so worth it. And he is so worth trusting. That's why you can trust him. That's why you can treasure him more than anything else. That's why understanding the gospel is the only way to unlock your eyes and unlock your gaze on the things and the ways of this world because he is so much more lovely. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that that may be so, that it might be true. God, help us. God, help me. Help me to right-size my perspective. Help me to not find assurance in anything that this world has to offer. To see those things as good, yes, but as a gift. And God, help me to not have my attention placed on things that just aren't worthy and are not worth it. Help my attention to be placed only on you because you deserve it. But Jesus, thank you that thinking that I'm worth dying for. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for purchasing me back, calling me back to you. Thank you, God, that you are satisfied in your children and that our only response is to worship and praise and honor you because you deserve it. God, I pray that for this morning, you would attach your word to our hearts, that we would remember what you have said and what only you have said alone. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.